0: Today
1: on Categorical Imperatives, we have to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case once again, and how it's the prosecution this time that has managed to completely beclown themselves. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, As always, I am your host, Lockheed and the Brill, your favorite law-talking guy.
0: I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law talking guy. The lawyer. Right.
1: And welcome back to the show. Uh, And I would like to extend a special welcome to any new viewers that may be joining us today. Uh, Welcome. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. So, uh, as I alluded to just a moment ago, we have to talk about the Kyle... Well, we don't have to. I want to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. It's my show. I can talk about whatever the fuck I want to. Uh, Anyways, so, we're going to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Um, Now, there is a piece of timeless professional wisdom that I imagine every lawyer, or at least every single trial lawyer will immediately recognize, and that is this, that when you are in court, you never ask a question you do not already know the answer to. This is fundamental. You never ask a question you do not already know the answer to. Now, if you have been following this case, You probably know already exactly where I'm going with this. And that is because the prosecutor in the trial Rittenhouse case, uh, Assistant District Attorney Thomas Binger has been the main prosecutor, seems entirely unaware of this. Now, as I understand it, he has been with the District Attorney's office for only two years, which makes him their most junior member. And I have heard a few people offer an excuse for why he is doing so poorly, but I don't buy it. That he would not already be fully aware of this maxim, inexperienced though he is to me, personally, seems highly unlikely. And, let's imagine that that this was something he didn't really think about before ever, that no one in the district attorney's office who works with him would have been watching his conduct in this trial and watching him conduct the trial with all the grace of a mouth tripping and falling down a flight of stairs and not pointing this out to him is just beyond me. It is really almost as though this guy never bothered going through the actual evidence Then he got all his facts on the events of that night in Kenosha from watching CNN and assuming because they call themselves the most trusted name in cable news that that must be true and they must know what they are talking about and he is just presenting the case that is being made by them and their clueless activists posing as journalists like Don Limone and Fredo Cuomo. Not to mention their idiot activists posing as legal analysts and lawyers like Laura Jarrett and Jeffrey Tubin. Now, as I mentioned last time, I have thus far been avoiding talking about this case because I find discussing issues that are being argued within the sphere of, I I guess, what is generally called the culture war, this is not really something that I have any interest in. I think the culture war is a really stupid and pointless, overblown concept. Uh, But now that this trial is going so badly that all the news stations and journalists who have been smearing, slandering, and libeling Kyle Rittenhouse have begun quietly issuing apologies and retraction because they are starting to realize that otherwise, if they do not, they will be leaving themselves wide open to some really, really obvious defamation lawsuits at the end of this trial for the way that they have been blatantly lying about every single aspect of this case from before the story even had anything to do with Kyle Rittenhouse.
0: I mean, these people
1: started by lying about what happened uh, in the shooting of Jacob Blake, and they just kept going from there. So, now that this pointless political spin has fallen to the wayside, what we are left with is a case that is uh, really actually just centered around two issues that to me, well, I think to many people, are of fundamental importance. Uh, and that's gun rights and self-defense. And these are two issues that I personally care uh, a whole lot about. So, I thought this would be a good chance to talk about this absolute abortion of a prosecution. Now, there are a lot of very good uh, online attorneys who are covering this case and giving you great uh, legal blow-by-blow accounts of the Trial. That's not what I'm really interested in doing here. Now, if that's something that you are interested in, uh, I would highly, highly suggest you check out Andrew Bronca. Now, he is a nationally respected attorney. His specialty is self-defense law cases, and you can uh, find him at lawofselfdefense.com or legalinsurrection.com. He also has a YouTube channel, uh, and he has been... Uh, Just doing a great job of uh, putting up all the trial footage and just giving, like, really good, detailed background, like, blow-by-blow legal commentary throughout the whole thing. So if that's what you're looking for, you can't do better than Andrew Branca. Now, for me, I just have a few observations to make about some particular aspects uh, of the law that I think people should be aware of here but are maybe unfamiliar with or also just some observations of things that i perceive as being important details that are either being uh ignored in the corporate media coverage uh they're maybe not being brought up by many of the legal uh online sort of you know law channels and uh it's especially considering the fact that um Even though a lot of these guys will do a very good job covering the stuff, the fact is most of the attorneys who will be uh, doing this kind of coverage uh, are not uh, really that acquainted with the relevant areas of law that this trial is dealing with, and that would be uh, self-defense in both statute and common law, as well as rules of criminal evidence
0: and procedure. So.
1: Uh, let's just start right from day one of the trial. So something that I have not heard anyone, uh, including other YouTube lawyers and legal analysts covering this case, uh, talk about uh, in a significant way is a motion in the that was raised by the defense on the first day of trial, but just before the jury entered the courtroom. So uh, essentially, the defense had a jury uh, instruction issue to raise with Judge Schroeder, uh, and specifically. Now, there all there always exists some intellectual tension between the legal concepts of justified self-defense on the one hand and allegations of recklessness on the other. And a somewhat odd wording of the Wisconsin jury instructions on recklessness really kind of muddy up uh, this tension. So, recklessness involves the creation of an unjustified and unreasonable risk of death and disregarding that risk in one's conduct. Now, self defense, of course, often creates a risk of death, but ought not to be considered inherently reckless. Now, at the same time, self defense is required to be reasonable, and recklessness is inherently unreasonable. Under most circumstances, one won't find an overlap between the legal doctrines of self defense and recklessness, so usually, This tension is just purely hypothetical, but the Wisconsin jury instructions, in effect, read that self-defense is not a legal defense to an act of recklessness, uh, which certainly makes sense, and they also read that an act of lawful self-defense is not recklessness, which also makes sense. But what happens when you have self-defense and potentially have recklessness simultaneously? So here, of course, we have uh, Kyle Rittenhouse is raising the legal defense of self-defense to justify his intentional shooting, uh, initially of uh, Jacob Rosenbaum. Now, the state, however, is arguing that not only did Rittenhouse shoot Rosenbaum, to which self-defense is an admittedly permissible defense, but that his conduct in doing so was also recklessly endangering to a reporter named Richard McGinnis who was standing some distance behind Rosenbaum, and self-defense, as I said, is not a defense to recklessness. So in the morning on the first day, uh, through the defense attorney, they sought to have Judge Schroeder uh, agree that if the shooting of Rosenbaum was deemed to be lawful self-defense that this necessarily meant that the same reasonable conduct in self-defense could not also be the basis for a finding of recklessness with respect to McGinnis. Now, I don't blame the defense for making this argument, and in all fairness, the specific uh, and somewhat really ambiguous wording of the Wisconsin jury instructions on reckless endangerment really do give his argument some legs. However, there is a normal practice here, and that is to analyze the two victims separately. And it must be admitted that there are circumstances in which self defense could simultaneously be reasonable with respect to one party and reckless with respect to another. Now, in my last video, I had uh, an analogy. I used about the legalities of establishing who would be the victim in a hypothetical situation. Uh, I'm going to kind of start from there again here. Um, So, if you missed it, we have a hypothetical situation in which a man attacks a woman one night. Uh, He is brandishing a knife. He is threatening to kill her, and he is attempting to rape her, but the woman happens to be carrying a pistol for self-defense. She shoots the attacker so, so she can get away and get help. Now, this creates an imminent threat that justified her as the defender pulling the pistol and shooting the attacker using deadly force to stop the unlawful attack. But imagine if, in the process of doing so, the defendant doesn't make any real good attempt to aim the weapon. Let's say just because they are very scared... Uh, they, They end up just kind of closing their eyes tightly, they point the gun in the general direction of the attacker, and they just do a full mag dump and they just keep shooting until the magazine is empty. And let's say, unfortunately, one of these rounds misses the attacker, ends up going into a home across the street, and hits and kills a child that is in that home across the street. Now, it's quite possible that such a use of force against the attacker would be entirely legally justified and, simultaneously, the death of the child is deemed the result of reckless conduct by the defender, though they are technically one and the same action. And, ultimately, this was the position that Judge Schroeder took. Now the judge also provided some guiding jury instructions on matters like how to evaluate credibility of evidence, to base the verdict only on evidence and arguments made in the courtroom uh, that is consistent with the application of the law as instructed by the judge and that the defendant is presumed innocent and that the state has the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and he explains he goes on and explains the meaning of reasonable doubt and so forth this is basically sort of your standard operating system ...for a jury in a criminal trial, and I have a feeling this is stuff that most people are fairly familiar with, so I'm just going to assume you understand this. Uh, so, anyways, right from uh, after that, we moved to opening statements, and things did not go well for the prosecution. Now, their opening remarks had all the components that one would expect in a politically motivated prosecution... That is, that he relied on vague and suggested statements that the defendant's actions constitute wrongdoing without offering any real evidence of what he characterized as poor judgment or that it was in any way inconsistent with Kyle's affirmative defense of lawful self-defense. Now, it was packed full of highly emotional phrasing that is meant to arouse an emotional response from the jury, especially fear. And he kept repeatedly stressing points that were true, but irrelevant and made to sound bad, even though there really is nothing there. Such as the way he kept describing Kyle as being armed with an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle with a 30 round magazine. And he kept saying that over and over and over again when he could have just easily said firearm or rifle or uh you know, sporting rifle, or any other number of terms. He kept using that specific description because he knew that the way many people's minds work, they hear AR-15 because of the way the news works, and they automatically associate it with some kind of implied bad intent. Now, when the district uh, uh, district attorney, Binger, discovered that Kyle Brittenhouse's attorney was planning to use you know, actual evidence in his opening statements, such as, you know, exhibiting photos and videos of the events that he was describing, uh, Binger actually objected, saying that allowing the defense to present evidence to back up his statements was unfair because Binger himself had chosen not to back up his indefensible assertions with the evidence he didn't have, mostly because his account doesn't comport with reality. Now, the next strange thing that I noticed uh, that was really amazing, actually, is how the prosecution has seemingly been spending the entire trial making the defense's own case for them. So, for example, we have—you guys may or may not have heard about this already—but we have this FBI drone footage that no one had seen up until the day of the trial except for the prosecution— And uh, they did not share this evidence with the court or with the defendant as they are required to by the rules of discovery before the trial. Now, this alone would have been ground for a mistrial, except that uh, for some uh, insane reason, uh, you know, the prosecutor decided to refuse to share this evidence. ...that he considered damning, except that it turned out to be potentially exculpatory evidence, um, which became apparent the first time we watched the footage when it was played at trial. So this was really, truly a kind of disturbing neglect on the part of the state in uh, following the basic rules of criminal evidence and procedural law, but um, it's really not an issue because, again, with everything the prosecution touches... This argument seemed to turn to shit, and it showed the exact opposite of what the prosecution claimed it did. So in the video, he claims that it shows Kyle Rittenhouse chasing Jacob Rosenbaum uh, as though Kyle was the provoker and the attacker in the situation, when in fact, we see and show the exact opposite. We clearly see Jacob Rosenbaum uh, duck behind a car he waits until Kyle walks by, and then once Kyle has walked by and is distracted by other rioters in front of him who are threatening him, Rosenbaum then sneaks up behind Kyle and attacks Now, if you want a, a real like forensic breakdown of that footage, you can go watch someone like Andrew Branca and his site, and he will put up different pieces of of the same footage from different angles, and he'll explain it all very well. I, again, I'm not trying to give you guys a blow-by-blow. Blow. I just kind of wanted to give you an idea of how bad this was, that the prosecutor presented this footage that he thought was going to be a win for him that showed the exact opposite and actually backed up Kyle's case entirely. So, it just, And I think you get a feel for that just watching the video
0: the way you did.
1: So, uh, that was day two. Day three of the trial was the prosecution's worst day yet, and that is really saying something because it's not like the prosecution had exactly outperformed the defense on the first couple days of the trial. Uh, Indeed, coming into it, the state had yet to present any evidence that was substantively inconsistent with Kyle's... Legal defense of self-defense, not a thing. Now, day three, though, like I said, it got even worse. So two of the state's own witnesses, and arguably, I would say their star witnesses, with the greatest uh, immediate personal knowledge of the events surrounding the shootings, who were journalist Richard McGinnis who was filming and interviewing Kyle that night, and a former Army infantryman named Ryan Volk, who was also armed and there, along with Kyle that night, provided lengthy testimony that not only failed to assist the state's efforts to attack Kyle's claim of self-defense, their testimony substantively strengthened Kyle's claim of self-defense. So, it's worth discussing what their testimony ought to have looked like, I think, had this been a normal criminal prosecution based on, you know, actual legal merit. Now, I want to stress again, these two were state witnesses. The state called these men to testify, not the defense. Both McGinnis and Balk. And they were both expected to provide testimony that contributed to the prosecution's narrative of Kyle's guilt and undermined his legal defenses. Again, in this case, that largely boils down to attacking and destroying Kyle's legal defense of self-defense, at least with respect to all the felony use of force and reckless endangerment charges in the case. Now, I want to stress here again, this is easy. People all know this, uh, you know... Uh, theoretically, but it's easy to forget the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse must be presumed innocent, and that means that his shooting of these men, and the reasonableness of his conduct, otherwise, unless it is otherwise, uh, proven, or, excuse me, unless it is otherwise disproven, beyond a reasonable doubt, to be outside the bounds of Lawful self defense, then he was justified in his actions. Now, that said, the prosecution doesn't have to disprove Kyle's claim of self defense in its entirety. The prosecution just needs to merely disprove any one of the four elements that make up a lawful self defense claim these four elements are cumulative, meaning that every one of the four is required, and if even a single one is disproven beyond a reasonable doubt, then Kyle's legal justification of self-defense collapses entirely. So to those who are new to self-defense law or would just like a quick refresher on the concepts of the elements of self-defense, we'll go over the four elements together here real quick and how the state would typically be expected to
0: disprove them.
1: So those four elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness. So in, innocence, in this, the state might attempt to prove that it was Kyle who was the initial unlawful aggressor in any of the confrontations that he was in that night. And as far as imminence, the state might attempt to prove that the attacks Kyle was defending himself against were neither actually in progress or immediately about to occur. Then, proportionality, the state might attempt to prove that the attacks on Kyle did not present an apparent deadly force in nature, readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury, and therefore, that his own use of deadly defensive force was excessive. And finally, reasonableness, the state might attempt to prove that Kyle lacked a genuine belief in the need to act in self-defense, or that this belief was irrational and not objectively reasonable under the circumstances. And of course, whichever element or elements the state sought to target in its attack on Kyle's claim of self-defense, it would need to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. How about that? I looked something up. These books
0: behind me don't just make the office look good. They're filled with useful legal tidbits, just like that.
1: So, this is necessarily the mission of Assistant District Attorney Binger in this prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse and how that mission would be accomplished. And it needs to be accomplished during the state's presentation of evidence. Obviously, after the state has rested and it's the defense's turn. Uh, It's not as if the attack by the offense could possibly make the state's narrative any stronger. Now, what one would normally expect from the state presenting its witnesses and uh, to subject them to direct examination or questioning, and uh, what I would be looking for if if I was the one questioning them, uh, would be building out that narrative of guilt that destruction of self-defense, and the substantive attack on one or more of those four key elements. So, what is this testimony, this line of argument attacking exactly? Again, either innocence, imminence, proportionality, or reasonableness. That's really all that matters here. Any testimony or argument that doesn't have one of those four elements at its target does not substantively undermine or disprove any one of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt and it is nothing but a waste of effort and of time now what we have seen over the first few days of the trial was a bunch of testimony that contributed nothing substantively to degrading any of those four elements and thus nothing to disprove Kyle Rittenhouse's claim of self defense there really simply was no substantive evidence that undermined any of those four elements of his claim. Now, what I saw from the state's witnesses on day three, however, was far worse. Not only did their testimony, uh, mind you, the testimony which is supposed to be the building blocks for the destruction of the claim of self-defense, not only did it not undermine Kyle's self-defense, Most of what we heard of testimony actually strengthened Kyle's claim of self-defense. And perhaps even worse, uh, Assistant District Attorney Binger's attempts to badger his own witnesses during their testimony into something that might, in one's wildest imaginings, resemble a tool to bludgeon self-defense resulted only in him appearing really intellectually desperate, and in his witnesses becoming visibly resistant to his badgering. So in the case of Balk in particular, uh, ADA Binger was even brought to the extremity of suggesting to the jury that Balk, now this was Binger's own witness that he called, that he wanted to stand to testify to strengthen his case, he ended up basically saying that this guy was nothing more than a petty liar. So, between the video evidence of McGinnis's testimony, uh, and his, excuse me, between the video evidence and his testimony in court, uh, it is really clear that what happened is Rosenbaum chased an isolated Kyle, uh, chased him across that parking lot. The other person who was with, uh, with who is this, Rosenbaum, uh, the other person with Rosenbaum, Joshua Zeminski, who had a Glock pistol on him, raised his pistol and fired a shot in the air. When this happened, Kyle heard the shot behind him, turned around, looked at Rosenbaum, and Rosenbaum uh, looked at him, screamed, fuck you, at the top of his lungs, and began charging at Rittenhouse. Now, much of this was confirmed by both the uh, observational testimony of McGinnis as well as by the various video recordings, including, like I just showed you, that FBI aerial infrared video recording, and the events are effectively indisputable. McGinnis personally observed the charge of Rosenbaum on Kyle and described the attack in great detail. He described Rosenbaum as in a hunched forward running position as one would be if they were running as fast as they could. Kyle was desperately fleeing towards the far side of the car store's lot and was shouting the words friendly, friendly, friendly while doing so. These cries of friendly, friendly, friendly did not dissuade Rosenbaum's continuing charge. Now, when Kyle turned back slightly towards Rosenbaum, even as Kyle continued to retreat, placing the rifle well within Rosenbaum's view, the sight of the rifle did not dissuade Rosenbaum's charge, and indeed Rosenbaum would charge until he was close enough where he actually lunged with an outstretched arm to try and gain possession and control of Kyle's rifle. Now, Kyle was still holding the rifle at a low-ready position, which means that he had uh, the uh, muzzle pointed down at a po- approximately a 45-degree angle to the ground. Now, McGinnis was uh, stood uh, from his—and this is crazy because the assistant district attorney asked McGinnis to, right there in the witness stand, stand up in his chair and demonstrate what aggressive attacking motions Rosenbaum made toward Kyle. He asked, he asked his client to explain in what ways the attacker was aggressive and initiating the attack, which is the exact opposite of what he's tried to prove. He wants to prove that it was Kyle who was, who was the attacker and the aggressor in the situation. So and, and then here is where the wisdom of never ask a question you do not already know the answer to comes in because ADA Banger kept trying to get, uh, kept trying to twist McGinnis's testimony from that night into something entirely different than what he actually said and meant. He kept insisting that McGinnis had referred to Kyle as menacing in a police report, but it's clear from both the transcript of the police report and from McGinnis's consistent testimony there on the stand in the court that he was not that he was not talking about Kyle he was talking about the general atmosphere of the riot as being menacing and he was very clear that he never thought anything about Kyle was menacing in particular just the situation of the riot in general now at this Uh, Binger then proceeded to try and impeach his own witness by insisting that because his answers were not the same twisted little half lie that McGinnis was trying to paint, even though that was never his answer to begin with, that he was lying under oath and his testimony could not be trusted. This was his witness, the one that he called to the stand to back up his case. Uh, This was really... I mean, before the trial, this was the guy who they were talking about as the prosecution star witness. And it ended with him calling his star witness a liar under oath who could not be trusted. And believe it or not,
0: things got worse.
1: Now, the other prosecution witness... Uh, on that day that took the stand was the guy I told you about, Ryan Balker, who had uh, just met Kyle that night, uh, the night of the riot, because Balker had shown up too. He was also armed to help protect people and businesses from being attacked and destroyed by the rioters. He and Kyle ended up spending a good chunk of time together that evening. The only problem is when Binger asked Balk For his impression of Kyle that night, Balk replied that Kyle seemed like a young and impressionable kid interested in other people and a lifeguard seeking to provide medical care to anyone who might be injured. He also described Kyle as presenting as vulnerable and someone who he thought protesters might identify as a target for attack. Now, in contrast, when he was asked to describe uh, his impression of Jacob Rosenbaum, who was the first guy who uh, attacked Kyle that night, Balk replied that every time he encountered Rosenbaum, he was being hyper-aggressive and acting in a violent manner. He was constantly having to be restrained from violence by others, he said. Indeed, Balk said that he was approached by other protesters who wanted to ensure him that Rosenbaum was not one of them, he was not a member of their group, and that his anger and violence did not represent them. These other protesters wanted no misunderstanding, and that there might even possibly be an association between them and the hyper-aggressive Rosenbaum, Now, I I think the ultimate high point came um, and again, I feel inclined to remind you again, even though i said this a number of times, that the state was engaged in questioning their own witness when Binger asked his witness Balk to describe an encounter between Kyle and Balk on the one hand and Rosenbaum on the other. That took place shortly after Kyle had put out a dumpster fire that had been started by Rosenbaum. Balk testified that Rosenbaum came right up to the pair, meaning to Kyle Rittenhouse and to him, Balk, and said uh, that Rosenbaum got right in their face and he was yelling and screaming and, quote, murderously pledged If I catch any of you guys alone tonight, I'm going to fucking kill you. And that is a direct quote. I'll read that again. Quote, He got right in my face, yelling and screaming, and murderously pledged, If I catch any of you guys alone tonight, I'm going to fucking kill you. End quote. Now, it's worth recalling, I think, that this murderous threat came from a hyper-aggressive and patently violent individual that is Jacob Rosenbaum, only a short time, really only minutes before Kyle was running for his life, he would hear a gunshot from behind him, and when he turned to see where the gunshot came from, he saw Rosenbaum, the man who had just threatened to kill him minutes before, charging straight at him, Rosenbaum was screaming at the top of his lungs, Fuck you! And lunged for Kyle's rifle. Now, if that sounds to you like a pretty good basis for a shooting of Rosenbaum by Kyle in self-defense, I would have to agree. Alright, anyways, um... That's really all I got for you guys today. Um, Now, I I may very well make another one of these videos in a few days once the uh, prosecution rests its case and the defense has had a couple days to begin presenting their case to the court uh, if things continue to be as interesting as they are. So let me know what you thought about the video down in the comments section. Uh, And look, if you liked the video, go ahead and hit that old thumbs up button down there. Uh, if you disliked it, go ahead and hit that thumbs down button. And uh, I would ask if you would consider subscribing to the channel. Um, I would really love to hit a triple digit subscriber count. Um, I've been stuck in the high 90s for a while, so if you're not subscribed, uh, now would be a good time to consider doing so if you like the show. I would greatly appreciate it. And if you are subscribed, pass the show on to a friend who you don't think has heard about it before. Uh, just, you know, let them know to check it out and that they might enjoy it. And if you want to uh, go above and beyond and to help support the channel through becoming a patron on Patreon or by leaving me a one-time tip over on PayPal, I have links in the description. That is always welcome. But I'm just glad you came out here uh, and gave me some of your time today. Uh, All the same. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this. So, uh... Yeah, I guess until next time, this is uh, me, Locking Liberal, Liberal, uh, four categorical imperatives, uh, talking about the prosecution be clowning themselves in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And, uh, of course, as always, DeLenda S. Cathago.